Hi, everybody. It's Monthly Call with Mark. A few of you remembered in spite of the fact that I was so preoccupied with this class I taught this morning that I forgot to send out the reminder about the monthly call. So started my uh, beautiful business series this morning that I don't know that I even mentioned to the bookkeeping group, but uh, I think I'll post that. I'm going to post that audio to the private podcast feed instead of last month's call. I think there's sort of better stuff in there. There's just a few of you here today. So anybody wants to chat, let us chat. I want to chat. <laughs> Hi, Amy. Let's chat. I, I feel a little self-conscious about chatting because I, I'm not here about a coaching business, but I did just become a coach. That You just said that in your last email to me. I didn't know that that was in process. Certification. So I'm really excited about that. So maybe I'm... So uh, yeah, anyway. So I feel, you know, I don't want to like dive into things that don't apply at all to other people. Um I it think all, it all translates actually. I think there's 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 stuff to be gleaned from many different angles and conversations. So don't please okay. don't be don't hesitate. Okay, okay. thanks, Jenny. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um and Mark. Uh I guess uh, Mark, I have to apologize too. I just barely saw a really nice email that you wrote to me last week <laughs> about about our business and cash flow situation. So oh okay. I knew that question. I would, this question was brewing. And then I saw your response and I was like, oh, okay. Maybe that changes my question um, a little bit. I just feel like, like, like get me started on something that I can dig into to feel better that, that, that could be better at all this stuff. You know what I mean? I appreciate what you said. It's maybe not that I'm bad with money, which is what I think. And I feel like I've some evidence to suggest <laughs> that I'm not so good with <laughs> Well, we money. all have some evidence to suggest we're bad with money. I mean, you I, can find it if you're looking. Yeah, yeah, I can find it. But then I have to remind, like, well, I still live in a house. I have paid my mortgage for a number of years. We still, you know, whatever, food on the table, that kind of thing. So I guess I feel like, I just feel like a beginner baby. Like, what should I do? How do I even start with this stuff? With money? Yeah. Is that okay. too broad? Nope. Okay. No. Although if it's okay, I mean, I'll, I'm going to take my cue from you. I think that there yeah. are the stuff that I sent you in that email, I think has application in every business, Super. Uh, especially in high touch service businesses like yeah. your family's photography business. Yeah. Um, but with money in general, the foundation that I like to teach that, um, the foundation that I like to teach is the idea of get ahead. 
And I sort of put get ahead as like, it's like I smash these words together and I call it a thing, get ahead. And the idea is over time, I think that we are more likely to feel happiness and peace in an environment where our income is steadily outpacing our expenses, which I realize is probably the most obvious thing anyone has ever said. And yet that checks it, seems, out for me. it seems very hard for a lot of people to sort of dial in, get into that groove and stay there forever. Yeah. And the, to me, the factors at play are, am I over time putting steady effort into increasing my income? And am I putting steady effort into either holding my expenses constant, reducing my expenses, or just having my expenses grow more slowly than my income? Does that, in my head, I can sort of see the graphs on, on a screen in my head. Yeah. Um, but that's the, if we want, if we think about the gap between income and expenses, and if we want that gap to be sort of increasing over time, the only levers we can pull are increase income and either decrease expenses or have expenses grow more slowly. Yeah. I think, um, and, and so implied there are two great levers. One lever is increasing the, um, increasing the money that comes in by increasing the value that we're exchanging for money. Mm-hmm or increasing the amount of money that we're exchanging for value that we're already giving, which is to say increasing prices on my existing products and services, right? Yeah, not changing anything, yeah. Or decreasing the cost of that income. So uh, to make that very specific, it would be like um, in, in the case, and I put this in the email, but in the case of your family's photography business, if everyone came to you instead of you ever having to go to anyone, the expense, the, the overhead in the business has now gone way down. Right. And I'm not saying that's even feasible. It's just a hypothetical to, to make the point. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So we can look at what makes my income expensive. Can I decrease the cost of that income? And can I increase the income? These are the levers we get to pull. And then on the, on the expense side, what desires and habits are driving my expenses? And can I play with those desires such that my expenses either go down, stay constant, or just grow more slowly relative to my income? For me, this is like the baseline philosophical lens that I'm looking at, looking through when I'm looking at money. Um, The way that I think you can make that sort of instantly practical or to start living those principles immediately is to simply set up an automated savings plan and have that be the um, sort of the indicator of how the whole system is functioning. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's sort of like a, like a reflection Yes. So fluctuations reflect exactly. income. So to the extent that I'm able to sustain and increase, however, gradually, however much of a trickle that increase is mm-hmm. in this savings, it's an indication that I am pulling some of those other levers 
increased income, decreased cost of income, decreased expenses or expenses growing more slowly. Those things have to be, I have to be manipulating some of those levers in order to sustain and increase that automated savings. Mm. And that's the game, especially as a self-employed person, that's mm -hmm. the game I play. All of that, of course, assumes that we're holding debt constant, mm -hmm. which is not an anti-debt sentiment. It's just viewing debt as part of the math equation that this whole thing is built around, right? Because yeah. if my savings is trickling upward, but so is my debt, well, we can just see that it's just the debt that's subsidizing the savings. Yeah. But if I'm able to steadily increase that savings over time and hold debt constant or even shrink debt, then I know that the growth is, is uh, it's like internal sustainable growth coming from income and expenses. So I honestly don't know how useful that is or if it's too abstract, um, but it, it's a way that I recenter myself when I'm looking at my own finances. What's happening with my automated savings? Is it trickling up upward over time? Yeah. Is that trickle upward being subsidized by debt? If so, what is causing that debt to increase? It's probably something in my desires, AKA my expenses, or it's something in my income or the cost of my income. It, it It's the, this idea of what's going on with my automated savings ends up being the door to the rest of the questions yeah. that I can look at. That's a great place to start. It is, it is abstract, yes, <laughs> but it's a great place to start if that's helpful. Then this question might not, this might be a moot point. Would you, you'll, you'll tell me. Um, so one of the things that we've been struggling with is labor costs, right? Uh, like getting to a certain point where there's one photographer in our business, mm -hmm. shoots, that's his genius, that's what he should be doing. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, an editor um, and mm. knowing, how much, how much we can pay her. We've had some, some learning curves, some, you know, some learning curves about how much to pay her. How do you know, how, how can we know how much we can afford to pay her? What's, what's even a, a place to start or a general guideline? Um, thoughts about that? Um, well, it's actually, it kind of comes back to the, to the other, to the other conversation. If we we're looking for trade-offs, we're looking for, if my goal is to, is to sustain this amount of income for myself and this amount of savings for my future, if we establish those numbers as sacred to a, to an extent, then now we're looking at the wages we're paying as a trade-off for how much we're paying ourselves and how much we're saving for the future. And the afford question sort of answers itself in that process. Mm. It's kind of like, well, if we pay her X, then we can't pay ourselves Y or save Z. So what's going to give? Is our savings going to give? Is our monthly income going to give? Or is that wage going to give? And if we decide that none of those three can give, then the only thing that can give is price mm -hmm. to the client. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. That one of the great challenges in a, especially in a creative output business like photography or like Jenny's web design business, or, or interestingly in coaching, coaching has its own application of this principle is that it's that in our own fears and insecurities, 
we may have a tendency to undercharge the client and overpay the contractor. It's the same fears and insecurities that can lead to both. Yeah. Well, I don't want to underpay her. She works really hard. She's really great. We'd hate to lose her. We have a lot of these kinds of thoughts, which are reasonable thoughts. And then if I say, okay, no problem, let's raise prices. Well, but I don't think we can raise prices. And now we've got ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And, and then tragically, we may end up saying to ourselves, I'm bad at money. <laughs> and it's like, actually, no, that has nothing to do with this. This is about the, 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 the value exchange that's happening between your business and your client, your end client and user and client, and the sort of the means of production, which include yeah. an editor. The means of production also include mileage to and from shoots, um, the, uh, the amount of editing inherent to specific types of projects. All of those are part of the means of production and have, and I think should be considered. And I think the solution, the answers to those questions actually resolve cash flow issues as much or more than any particular personal finance habit. Hmm. I mean, as self-employed people, the profit equation is, I mean, it's everything. It's everything. Great. Just like, and we I know some of your clients and I want you to charge them two or three times as much. <laughs> I think they'll pay it. I think so too. I you think probably so. know who I'm talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. I'm oh, dying, you don't. Dying to know. So I'll well, email you later. Just go into your transaction history and think about me and see where there might be some overlap between who's 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 having Justin take their picture. I just can't think about that. Yeah, okay. I'll go do some research. <laughs> <laughs> That's another tricky part, right? Is that is that um uh I don't know if anyone else runs a business with their spouse, but I have a lot of great ideas sometimes that my husband is a little resistant to. And now that I'm starting a coaching business, he's he, just this morning, we had a conversation where I was like, Hey there, stay out of my space. Well, oh, like, he's oh, got ideas now, right? He's got some ideas but for me now. And that's a little it's like, well, yeah, we all have comments on each other's comfort zones. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And totally. it's way easier to have comments on other people's comfort zones than it is to have comments on our own. Yeah. Um, but you know, in your, you, you do have some really interesting kind of niches carved out in that photography business between the corporate work and then the stu in studio work and then, you know, weddings. And there's a conversation to be had around which of these sub markets actually deliver the most bang for buck. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be a difference between them. They, they can't be. Yeah. I mean, you tell me, but it seems, it seems impossible to me that they would be sort of equally. Um, yeah. There's a huge difference. Family portraits are for sure most lucrative and. Oh, yeah. I would not have guessed that. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they totally are. Um, especially when people come back to the studio and see a beautiful collection that they can buy. And then they leave with something uh, that's like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. quality and, you know, so 
but this, so this is part of the struggle with this year is that just sort of the like general flow of the business has been toward corporate headshots. I've been seeing a lot of those in the transactions. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's a little bit like, wait, what happened? How did this happen? And I, and I think Justin did some corporate, like a corporate magazine. Uh, he did covers and stories for them for about a year. And I think we're now seeing the residual of that is tons of that coming in and it's, and it's fine work, but it's not, it's not what he loves to do. And it's not, it doesn't pay us, you know, as well as other work could. So I think we're in the position for sure of looking at like, what's in the rearview mirror? How did this happen? How can we turn that tide? And and you also probably have to have some awareness around, as we all do, sort of like if I cut off one income stream, yeah, I, maybe I'm com- cutting off lower profit work, but I might accidentally be cutting off a referral stream too. Yeah. Because there may be family portrait work that comes through corporate headshot work. For sure. Yeah. Um, And so you just, you know, I've I've experienced that in the bookkeeping business. I'll sort of cut off one stream or one price point without considering that that actually was a domino that, that knocked over other dominoes, which, which cut off a, it, it was, that product was actually serving a marketing function in the business and they didn't even realize it. So yeah, these things all, they, it's, it's not easy necessarily, but they do all have to be considered. So great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, for side your- note. And I'm, this may be, maybe I'm now commenting on Justin's comfort zone, but you have a strong brand, yeah. like really strong brand and strong brands. The, the way their brand shows up in their PL is by charging a, a premium. Right. I mean, like the, 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 the Hackworth name was very well known to my family long before we met. Cool. I love that. That's so that's, I mean, and we live in the same area, but, but that's, you know, that's a factor in the pricing. I I think it should be a factor in the pricing. That's, that's the opinion I'm offering. Yeah. Same. I think so too. (laughs) We agree on that one. And then, yeah. Yeah, we got to work on, we got to work on Justin a little bit. Uh, not that he doesn't want to charge more. I don't know. I think there's a lot there for him. There's a, I mean, I, I kind of want to recommend a book, but it's, it's kind of a long way to get to one idea. There's a book called The Goal. and It's a book about manufacturing, but it relates Weirdly, it relates to any business, like it relates to my bookkeeping business, it relates to your photography business. It's built around the idea of throughput, meaning Hmm. for a given amount of time, how much raw material are we able to move through the system and turn into finished product and sell finished product? And the whole thing is built around this idea of increasing throughput in a business. And what are the bottlenecks to that throughput? And in your case, the bottlenecks are things like driving to and from location or flying to to and from location. Um, It's about, or driving to a corporate office. These are the things that like, if you, if you look at them through a manufacturing lens, it can be helpful in clarifying what actually would streamline the business and make it more, um, make it easier to earn the same amount of money basically, or more money. Yeah. I mean, Jenny's, Jenny's here with us. Jenny's business is a pure throughput business, right? Like it's, 
and, and Jenny's whole system, I've been Jenny's client a few times. It's the whole system is built around throughput um, and does a great job of it. And so it's great business, very profitable. When you say built around throughput, that means the ease with which it's so in Jenny's case, it is the ease with which uh, the idea for a website becomes a website. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the, that's Jenny's process. Jenny's process takes, I want a website and it produces a website with as little friction as possible. As little friction for Jenny as possible, as little friction for the client as possible. Uh, and he does a great job of that because it's built, it's, it's built entirely around that system, the system that produces that website in a, in a low friction way. And I'm trying to do the same thing in bookkeeping. I mean, this is what you and I've talked about in so many emails. My business is about throughput. Yeah. And it's like, I, uh, I think I've told it, I think even on this podcast, I've told the community, the profit in my business comes almost entirely from persuading clients to conform and comes very little from any particular bookkeeping expertise that I have. So it's the equivalent in your business, not that it should be this, but it would be something like, we only take people's pictures in our studio. If they want pictures elsewhere, we don't take their picture. Hmm. So there's sort of these scary commitments that we can make that have massive consequences to throughput, but they're scary. I was going to add- Oh, go ahead, Jenny. I was going to add to that. Like I have, I have made those sorts of decisions where I say no a lot, especially in the first like year or two of my business, where I only took on coaches that needed the specific kind of website that I had a really great process for creating. And like when I had coaches that would come to me and ask for membership sites and other things that were not in my wheelhouse, I sent them to someone that I knew that could take care of them. Like I said, no, even though memberships are like the big money, you know, in the web industry. But I was like, that is scary to me. I don't have a process to know that I can do a good job on that and be profitable and have fun. And so I said, no, now I'm kind of getting to the phase where I'm ready to take on that challenge. And okay, how do I come up with a process that works for memberships and works for these like bigger kind of sites? But even then I'm kind of like easing into that. I'm not taking on a lot, you know? So but because I said I did that and I'm like, all right, I'm really good at like this one particular kind of project that let me become that, like, I call it a KPI, like a key person of influence. That's a, that's a book that I really love. Um, oh. That's that title, which is basically just be, how to become that person that has their own market. Like you were saying earlier, Mark, like that there isn't competition. You can charge whatever you want or need to, and people will pay it because you are the go-to, you know, there isn't any, anyone else. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my input on that throughput. Yeah. And you're, I mean, you're a, a fantastic example of it. It's hard to turn that money down, especially in the early days. It's hard. Yeah. What gave you the courage to do that, Jenny? What, what was your process like? I mean, that book, that key person of influence book really helped me to have the visual of like, no, this is what I'm creating. Like I am the go-to person for the new coach that doesn't have a website yet that needs this kind of site. And I'm amazing at that. And I'm going to like be, I'm going to stay amazing at that instead of spreading myself 
I'm going to stay on that track so I can become amazing at it. Does that make sense? Instead of spreading myself thin to try to become good at a lot of things when I can do this one thing and be amazing at it. So I think that helped. And then also like, I have thoughts around, like, I'm the, anyway, this is my self-coaching work. Like I'm the kind of person that I do, I do what I say I'm going to do. And the thought of not doing that, like is death. <laughs> like, I think I'm going to die. And so it helps me, <laughs> it keeps me from saying it. it's kind of a weakness, but it's also a strength in the sense that like, uh, I don't want to commit to anything <laughs> that I know I can't really like knock out of the park. Cool. Thank you. Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll speak for myself, Amy. Um, I have been releasing some clients this year from bookkeeping, which, you know, let's do the books. Pricing is such that if I don't have quite a few clients, it's just not a very exciting business. So the, the pressure that I feel is, oh, but every client counts. But at some point I was like, yeah, every client counts, but there's no margin here. There's no, if, if I don't ask these clients to conform to a specific workflow, the business will be out of business. Um, and so, and, or, and, or I'll just hate my life. It's just so stressful. And speaking of Jenny's desire to never flake on a commitment, what I find is, and that's a real, that's a real challenge for me. It's like a personal challenge of making better commitments and keeping those commitments. And what I find is when I accept nonconformity in my clients, those are the clients that I inevitably disappoint. It is inevitable that when I let them operate, operate outside of my workflow, they end up being the ones who are disappointed and they're right to be disappointed. But it's not that I should have been better at accommodating them. It's that I should have been, I should have had more integrity in telling them I couldn't give them the service in the first place. So it's, it's not a failure of service. It, for me, and this sounds harsh, but for me, it's not a failure of service. When I do this, it's a failure of integrity. And that's what I'm trying to work on in myself and in my business. That was really helpful, even for a coaching business. So Amy, just know. <laughs> I have a question for you. Yeah. Fire away, Sandra. This is a completely different topic, but um, they're in the coaching posse this month. There's been some discussion about the ease of selling programs, the ease of selling like group programs. And, you know, we've all heard this. It's easier to sell a $5,000 program to one person than it is to sell a $50 program to however many people, right? That is my opinion. Yes. Okay. So tell me why, why is, why do you say that? Because that's not what I found. And I've been, I've been debating a lower cost program and I keep going back and forth because of this. So let's make it specific to you then, Sandra, what have you found easier to sell than what fill those blanks in for us? Well, okay. So my niche is that I specifically work with women who have a history of trauma and abuse. And um, what I know about that niche is that typically these are women who don't want to spend money on themselves. It is 
they they were raised usually usually they have some sort of thing in their history that tells them they're not worth anything and so they want to get better but when i tell them that i charge five thousand dollars for a six-month package getting them to commit to that is difficult so what I have found, and I'll tell you, I initially, when I started coaching five years ago, the first thing that I sold was a um, group program that was a six month program and it was a hundred dollars a month. And I filled that program in like three days. I had 20 clients in this program. I had two separate groups and it was filled immediately. And it was not my favorite thing to do. I love one-on-one -on -one coaching, but so I didn't continue that program. Once it was done, I didn't continue it. And I focused on getting one-on-one -on -one clients, but I'm finding it difficult to get one-on-one -on -one clients at my price point. And the price point that I have set, I've set it because of my experience, my training, I am, ex I'm highly trained. I have a ton of experience, both life experience and coaching experience, but I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm not increasing my business. I've been, so a year ago, I quit my corporate job and started coaching full-time and my business is in exactly the same financial place as it like today as it was a year ago. So it has not increased at all. And it is not, from what I can tell, it's not because of, you know, not marketing. And I mean, I have people coming to me. I have followers. I, ha I do consults. I have all of those things. But the thing that I've been able to identify is that my clientele have a really hard time thinking that they are worth $5,000. And they think that, you know, they don't necessarily believe in themselves enough to know that they can change. Um, when you had the, uh, the six month group for a hundred bucks per month, you said mm -hmm. you filled it once, twice. Well, I did two groups, so I, I did it twice. Back to back or concurrent? Was it two groups? No, they were concurrent. They were concurrent. So you had 40 people. Yeah, no, I actually had two groups of 10. Oh, okay. So you had 20 people. Yeah. And then have, having completed those two groups, did you attempt to fill another group? I didn't because of what I said. I just didn't love it. I love the one-on-one -on -one okay. coaching. Okay. So you, you didn't, how, how did those 20 people find you at the time? Just through my social media stuff, hmm. just through Facebook, Instagram, you know. And so right now, the reason you're not, the reason you're not offering another group at that price point is because you really prefer to do one-on-one -on -one work? I, yeah, I prefer the one-on-one, -on -one, but the thing that I've been considering is doing another group like that. I would probably actually even make it smaller simply because I, in working with this particular clientele, I'm dealing with a lot of, I mean, trauma comes up all the time. That's just it. And so dealing with a um, smaller group is more helpful just for me as a coach. How, how many, 
Could you guess at how many no's you've had to the $5,000 price point? Okay. <laughs> I am super open with my pricing. So my pricing is on my website. Anyone can see it. Anyone can go to it. So okay. what I know is that I have a lot of traffic on my website. Mm -hmm. um, number wise, I would have to pull it up to look, but um, I mean, okay, I, let me say this too. I'm not spending anything on advertising. Okay. So I am only doing social media. However, my website gets about 15,000 hits a month. That is not an exact number, but that's about I know what I've gotten in the past. Um, so I actually don't get no's. <laughs> you don't, because you don't get consults. Because I don't get consults. If, yeah. By the time someone comes to me, they sign because they That's already right. know everything about me. That's right. I but always, tell, I always tell coaches, if you want to take your close rate close to 100%, yeah. publish your prices. Right. And that's, and I don't have any desire to convince people to work with me. If they want to work with me, awesome. If they don't, then I don't need to get on consults where I have to try and convince them. So that's my, that's my feeling. And yeah. so I only get about, I mean, maybe one consult a month, sometimes two. Um, but really, I mean, one a month is pretty average for me. And, and on average, is that consult signing? Yeah. Okay. So you're averaging about a client per month. Yeah. So where you started was whether philosophically, because this is a, an ongoing philosophical debate, is it easier to make one $5,000 sale or 50 $100 sales? Right. I still think you've answered the question that it's easier to make one $5,000 sale than 50 $100 sales. Because if you were attempting to make at the moment, let's say you're at a, at a rate of about one sale per month at 5k. Okay. I think you would find it, uh, if you were to relaunch, in fact, you might want to do this because I'm, I'm not here to tell you not to. If you were to reopen a group at 100, you might have an initial surge where it's like, oh, I filled two groups. That was pretty easy. But then the third group, the fourth group, and the fifth group, you would find yourself saying, oh, okay, well, I wanted 10, I got four. Oh, I wanted, I wanted... 10, I got six. I'm, I'm scrambling to fill the next group. The, the nature of the reason it's usually harder to make 50, $100 sales than it is to make, um, one $5,000 sale is that going from $0 to any dollars is a big emotional leap for at every price point from $0 to a dollar. Is there still a, there's a pretty big emotional chasm to cross. And weirdly, and again, pure opinion, by the way, I'm going to disclaim that the friction associated with a zero to $1,000-ish price point, it, it's a comparatively high friction mm -hmm. than say a $5,000 price point. So the friction tapers off as the price gets higher. Not that it's not maybe quote unquote harder to make the $5,000 sale, but it's not a hundred times higher, harder than a $50 sale. So there's comparatively less friction. So the, the nature of a low, low, uh, I'm sorry, a high volume, low touch business, lower, relatively lower price point is such that you end up spending all of the work of the business is creating transactions 
and, and continuing to fill the pipeline. Whereas in a higher touch, lower volume business, the work tends to be more in serving the client you're currently in front of, and then having them either renew or refer, renew people, renew with you or refer people to you. Okay. So there's just less activity in the low volume, high touch business. And there's comparatively much higher activity in the um, high volume, low touch business. And in the high volume, low touch business, there tends, tends to be a lot of launch stress. I've got to fill, I've got to fill, I've got to fill. Like this is, this is actually what I talked about in the recording that I'll post um, the class I taught this morning and I'll put the recording in our feed. High volume, low touch has a ton of launch stress built into it. I'm hoping to get this many. I'm hoping to get this many. I'm hoping like that never ends. I've been in this business nine years working with people who are on launch driven, launch driven businesses, launch stress. I've never seen it go away. I've never seen it diminish. So interesting. It is in practical terms. It, it seems harder to me to sell a hundred people or 50 people than one person. Here's the exception. Things like memberships and courses are actually a fantastic way to monetize a huge audience slash a very successful marketing habit. So if I'm really good at bringing people into my world and building trust with those people, and I'm good and I'm good at doing that on an ongoing basis, like there's always new faces showing up all the time. Memberships and courses are a great way to monetize that machine. Memberships and courses and low ticket stuff in general is in my experience, a terrible way to avoid marketing. And many people think that they're going to start a membership so that they can avoid marketing and it works never. Like, like it fails. How would we say it? It fails, but only always. Um, okay. Low, low ticket, high touch stuff is a great way to monetize a big audience. High, high ticket, high touch, low transaction volume, low client volume is a great way to have like, honestly, amazing quality of life, a high hourly wage, um, a lot of freedom, um, and way fewer consults. Right. Interesting. I, I wonder. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about it in the long term. So that does make sense. Here's why, here's why your question is so valuable. I'm so glad you asked it. Uh, something I have observed, it's funny. My sister has a business very similar to mine. We've both observed this from different angles. People who do a lot of work over a long time, um, in sort of community building, audience building, whatever you want to call it. I imagine you probably have a pretty decent sized social following. Um, you've got all this traffic coming to your website, probably have a pretty decent email list. When those people decide to make a switch from high touch, low volume to low touch, high volume business models, the first thing they launch tends to do amazing because they're capturing all the pent up demand that has been building in their business at the lower price point. All these people who are like, I'm not going to spend 5,000, but I'll spend 50. And you sort of harvest all those people from the community. 
And many people in that sitting then decide that that's the new normal. Like, well, I got a hundred people to pay me 50 the last time I launched this thing. I'm, I'll probably get 150 next time. But in the meantime, they haven't done anything to sort of replenish the audience. And so they're confused when the first time they got 100 and the next time they get 30 and the time after that, they get six. They're very, very confused by that. Well, what happened was they they spent years and years and years developing, well, that may be too dramatic. I don't know if it's years and years and years, but they've spent a certain amount of time building the audience. Then they harvested. And then they think that the the they think that the audience is static they've, and it's not, it's dynamic. And they've, they've already gone there once they've dipped into that audience once and they have to now be replenishing. So low, low touch, uh, high transaction volume businesses are built around bringing new people in constantly. And they succeed to the extent that they're able to bring fresh faces into the auditorium. I always use the auditorium metaphor. Like, because, and I like the auditorium because you're standing on stage, you're making an offer from stage, your auditorium's full. Some number of people get up and accept the offer and leave, like they move on to the customer phase. So now there's some empty seats in there. A bunch of other people just hang out because they like the room. Like, oh, there's good stuff happening here. I'm not going anywhere. But they've already heard the offer once and declined it. And now they're building a mental habit. And in order to be psychologically consistent, they have to say no next time, or now they're inconsistent. So they're still in the room. They're still loving it. And I want them in the room. I want them referring people to you. I want them participating. But there's a, a, a decent percentage of those people who are now training themselves to say no every time you make that offer. So the absolute key to the whole thing is, am I replacing all those empty seats with new people? And if I'm not, then my numbers are going to dwindle over time. Whereas in a one-on-one -on -one business, the auditorium metaphor just goes away almost completely because I'm engaging with people one at a time. And I've got this steady trickle of people who are engaging with me and some say yes and some say no. And then they come back and say yes later. And then they renew and then they refer someone. And it's this very organic, it's like gardening. One-on-one -on -one businesses are much more like gardening. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. You've convinced me, so. <laughs> now that I convinced you, it may, it may be worth an experiment. Yeah. And I and think I everything's actually, worth experimenting with. Yeah. I actually am probably going to experiment with it and see if there is just because of my clientele. But I totally understand, especially your auditorium. That is a really good visual because if you're not refilling the auditorium, then you're selling to the same people and probably not going to get much of anything from people who are just hearing it over and over again. So I'm going to have to think about that because, yeah, how much work do I want to put into refilling my auditorium? That is the question. That is actually, <laughs> that is actually one of the very few key questions that people in all these business models that are available to us, that is one of the most important questions. How much time and energy do I want to spend filling an auditorium versus working with clients? Yeah. What I, what, uh, the last little bit of food for thought I want to give you is 
the generalization that you're making about your prospects. Oh, I know. Go ahead. Give it to me. (laughs) If it's true, it's true. If it's not true, it's the most expensive thought you will ever have. Yeah. The reason that I have the thought is twofold. First of all, I have done some polling of clientele asking them, you know, what keeps them from hiring, what, you know, what keeps them from coming back, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I do have some information. Let me speak to that one directly. Okay. It's a false objection. Okay. And, and I mean that not like in a, I'm a life coach and the world is abundant nonsense kind of way. It's a basic human psychology that when I'm asked a question, rather than exert myself meaningfully on the answer, I will default to a, like an accepted societal answer or norm. Why aren't you spending money on that? Because I can't afford it. It's like, it's Pavlovian. It's like, we just say this to each other and no one challenges it. Well, we'd love to go to Disney this year, but you know, money, Oh, tell me about it. There's no one is really like pushing back and be like, are you sure? So in a survey environment, the question would be other than money, what would stop you from doing this? And their answer, it's still in the same neighborhood. So they're going to be like, oh, nothing. If I had the money, I would do it. And it, it ends up not being a compelling, it, it's just not compelling data. Yeah. I will tell you, Sandra, that almost every coach I've ever talked to, except for people who coach coaches, will say, my niche doesn't spend money on themselves. Interesting. I don't think I've ever talked to a niche that does spend money on themselves, except coaches. And for all you listeners out there, air quotes around all of this, because I don't agree with it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just. That's interesting. That's a really interesting thing to hear. Hmm. I'm also not going to tell you that I think that makes it easy. I'm not going to tell you that you're committing some grave mental blunder. I don't believe any of that. What I believe is if that thought is not true, it is your most expensive thought. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, there are people who spend the money because I do have clients who spend it. So they're there. They are there. Those are meaningful data points. As soon as someone says, yes, it becomes harder to say no one says yes, because now math is in the way. Yes, exactly. Stupid math. <laughs> Hate that. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, quite honestly, and my husband is actually really great at challenging me on that too, because he's, he always says, but you've spent a lot of money <laughs> and you are your client. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah, you want to be. I'm the exception, right? Yeah. And you and your clients are the exceptions, right? You, you want to be thoughtful about whether you want to validate that in your client's mind. If, if she is telling you that because of the trauma she's experienced because of societal or cultural conditioning, family conditioning, if she is telling you, I'm not worth it. I think you want to be thoughtful about whether to validate her with your price. Oh, well, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I mean, literally one of the reasons my price point is 5,000 is because I realized I used to charge a lot less and I realized that I was not doing my clients any favors. 
because it allowed them to have access to something that was absolutely life-changing without having to actually put anything forth for it. And I have found my clients who pay me $5,000, they make incredible changes in a very short period of time. My clients who pay me half that make half the progress. And that's literally, I've seen that. It's, it is crazy to me, but I, but I see it. Right. So, and I think these things, I think these things to be done with care and with sensitivity because taken to their extreme, we have people who are like, I mean, I kind of laugh when someone's like, well, you got to raise your prices because blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, well, why are you who are telling me that? Why aren't you charging a million dollars for coaching then? If I take what you're telling me to its logical conclusion, the price for my coaching should be a million dollars or more. Well, but you got to be reasonable, right? We're all picking our number that we're going to call reasonable. I just want us to do that with a little bit more thought. And I want to, I want us to think about what message we're sending with the price. I want us to think about how we're selling to make sure that it's not manipulative or predatory. All of these things have to be done with care. Um, but I, what you're saying resonates with me. It's an incredible vote of confidence. When we ask someone to pay an amount of money for a coaching experience that we know is uncomfortable for them, it's an incredible vote of confidence from us to them. Just, just by inviting them to pay that, if we've done it care with thought and care, we're voting for them in a way that maybe no one has ever voted for them. And I think that's compelling. Yeah. So price is, um, I think price is a big deal. I think it's a, it's a deep kind of rich topic. Yeah. No, and that, that is a, that's actually a really, I like the way you just said that. And I believe that that's true. And it is the reason that I have my price point where it is. And I, uh, I look at it as something that, I mean, for me, I was never pushed to do anything for myself. And yeah. so I, I want to push clients to see themselves in a different way. Yeah. I mean, frankly, it's the reason I put my prices on my website too, is because I'm like, this is what it costs. And if you, I, I have kind of a compelling story, my personal story, and people know that. And many of my clients, that's why they come to me. Cause they're like, okay, if you could overcome all of that, then certainly I can overcome this, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And it, that's worth $5,000. It's yeah. worth a lot more than $5,000. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Something tactically, something you may want to consider is since you are publishing your prices on your website, what you've done is you've reduced the amount of data that's available to you to shape your approach to your audience. Because when you had more consults, there was, there was data there for you to sort of chew on and deal with by publishing your prices. You've eliminated that data. I'm not, I love that approach, but you might look for other things to track besides raw visitor count um, and sales. And I don't know what the intermediate steps might be. It might, that I'd kind of, leave you to hunt for that. Maybe you do some things that are, maybe they attend live classes and you can track their attendance or there's something to sort of give you an indication of how many people are raising their hands a little bit. Okay. And then only, only to help you shape your message and your approach. Yeah. Just so you have a, 
right now you're in a, um, I have compassion for the fact that you're in a little bit of sort of no man's land where either they buy or they do nothing. Right. And that can feel like a little bit of like, well, what do I change if, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at in trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to be doing in order to bring more consults? And I'm not a fan of not publishing my pricing. I, I, I did that. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work for me. I if I could persuade every coach to publish their pricing, I would persuade every coach to publish their pricing. It's yeah. such a streamlining mechanism in a coaching business. Also, yeah. it shows such confidence. Um, this might sound like a weird use, word to use in this context, but it's an incredibly intimate move to publish your prices on your website and to say, I'm willing to make myself known to you, website visitor, in this way. I'm not holding this back from you. Yeah. So I think it establishes something really cool in the relationship from day one. Right. And then you have to work around the challenges of like, oh, it was easier to feel successful when I was busier with more consults. Right. Now I have to sort of manage my mind during all the quiet between those few consults that pretty much always say yes. Right. Yeah. And that is so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's interesting. Every time I tell people that I, I, I think I've only had one no consult ever. And, uh, when I tell other coaches that they're all like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, but I only do one a month. So. <laughs> yeah. And lots of coaches be like, oh, you got to get more consults. You got to get more consults. A certain percentage should be saying no, Maybe I, I, I don't claim to have all the answers on this, but if, if you had two consults instead of one per month and you were converting on average, both of them, I think yeah. we'd be having a different conversation right now. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause it would double my income. Right. So there's not in, in real math terms, there's not a big gap between where you are and where, where you want to be. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's a great perspective. Okay. Wouldn't it kind of be a bummer? I mean, really, if you were like, uh, I want more consults. So you changed things such that you got like 10, 15 consults per month, but you only made two or three sales. And it's like, Ooh, would I make that trade off? Would I sort of get yeah, rid of this extremely clean and streamlined business where it's sort of like one-to-one -one consults to clients? I don't know if I'd mess with it. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, that is a great um, thought because I mean, there's all these poor coaches out there who are advertising their consults on Facebook and they get like a jillion consults a month and half a jillion don't show up. Yeah. So their week is full of no-shows. That's a different kind of challenge to, to manage yourself around. I know which one I would choose. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I appreciate that because that is a really interesting perspective just to see, because no, I'm not extremely busy, but I'm doing what I want to be doing. And I think that's the, the thing is that I'm not spending a ton of time entertaining people who don't actually want to get serious about coaching. So. Amen. All right. Thank Good you. Good talk, I Sandra. I really appreciate it. Yeah. it. I think there's a, I think there's a lot in there for people. Yeah. Thank you. And I actually have a consult in three minutes, so I'm going to hop off. <laughs> done and done. All right. We'll see you. Good yeah. luck. Anybody else I can chat with today before we call it? I'll chat for a minute. Yeah. What's um, the update, Jenny? 
I'm trying to figure out now, now that my course is up and it's going and it's, you know, getting a few students here and there, I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure out, I'm going to redesign my website because it's been a while and now I have two offers and I want to kind of streamline the flow, but I'm trying to figure out how do I, how do I offer two different things on a website? both the paid offer for each of those things, those ideal clients, and also like the free offer, like the freebie or, you know, video course training or whatever for both of those in a way that's like, it's just like a user experience, experience, interesting thing. And I'm just curious, how would you do it? Um, as a quick aside, have you read story brand? I haven't read it, but I mean, I know the, you know, story brand. Yeah. Yeah. He does a pretty good job. Donald Miller does a pretty good job in that book, uh, building a, I think it's called building a story brand for any of you who haven't heard of it. Um, he, he does a good job of saying sort of what's your primary call to action. What's your secondary call to action. And, and so he encouraged you, of course, you're going to call that out with your copy, but also call it out visually. And of course you're going to have an easy time of that, but in your your um your course is for such a different person than your done for you service that i don't know exactly how i'd represent this on the homepage but i would have sort of a if this is you do this if that is you do that yeah that's that's what i'm planning to do at least on the work with me page but then on the homepage i was like do i just keep that focused on list building and have the two different freebies and it's like hey if you're this coach do get this freebie and if you're this coach oh, do this two freebie. different freebies mm-hmm. and then not talk about ways to work with me but then i, I don't know <laughs> do people who want the done for you service need a freebie maybe they don't i mean i have my freebie for the bookkeeping service but i debate like, well, first of all, I know I should rewrite it. It's an email series and I know I should rewrite it. It's totally not relevant to the person who's actually landing on my website. Um, but I think on average, my, my hypothesis is that people land on let's do the books.com because someone told them to go there. They click through the services, they read through the service. Maybe they read through some FAQ and they're like, all right, this is it. This is what I thought. It's what I thought it was. I'm going to sign up. I don't think they really need a freebie. Right. Yeah. Cause that's my whole like inner conversation is like, well, right now I have my like three month nurture email sequence and it's all geared towards done for you. And do I change that? And how do I change it? And it's like, maybe I just make the new freebie. It's for the course people. And then the nurture sequence, I just edit it to be just for the course people. And then if people want done for you, like they already know that I offer that they're hearing about it from their friend and they're not even in that same realm. Yeah. Um, shoot, I got to go. I have a call, but here's my last thought. Here's my last (laughs) thought. It would be good for you to have some amount of data around those for people who sign up for your done for you. What was their path to purchase? And did the nurture really factor or were they just basically saying I interacted with Jenny and coach posse or my friend hired her. And by the time I reached out, I knew, okay, it's time to build a website. That would be my guess, but I, I would be curious to have some data. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks everybody for being here. It's fun to chat with y'all. Thank you. Okay. We'll see you.